good morning. That's, I'll get over that. Thank you, Stephen. <laughs> I'm Jonathan Mitchell, and I'm one of the elders here at Grace Bible Church. Um, when I first was asked to consider becoming an elder, my first thought was, but I'm not old. Yes, I am. Yes. <laughs> old, old enough, anyways. Um, it has truly been a pleasure to serve with the staff and the elders here at Grace. Uh, I've really enjoyed getting to know them, uh, men and women who serve Christ diligently. We care about you deeply. We are a family here. We want to hear from you if you have prayer needs or concerns, and we would love to be available to help you if at all possible. This morning, I'm, I'm humbled and nervous and privileged to bring God's Word to you this morning. I'd like to start by just asking if any of you feel tired or defeated or weak like you can't even finish one month of your New Year's resolutions that you set yourself. Maybe you feel anxious or worried because classes are starting this week at SFA. Maybe you feel like you've been rejected or left out or marginalized. I just want you to know you are welcome here. This is not a place uh, of good people celebrating our own goodness. We are a messy bunch, staff and elders included. Uh, but we serve a perfect Redeemer who is worthy of our worship as we sang about. And he entered our mess. He got his holy hands dirty. If any of that interests you, then listen on because I have good news to proclaim to you this morning. Let me pray for us and then we'll begin. Father, forgive the sins of this broken man for they are many. When my thoughts run wild and my emotions are dark and confused and I can't understand myself, your peace and your truth settles my soul. I pray that you would settle my soul now, that you would get me out of the way, that your word proclaimed would be clear and effective, and I pray that you'd bless it. In Jesus' name, amen. We're in Galatians 2. Last week, Brent encouraged us to be storytellers. Now, what makes a story so powerful? What makes an epic tale so epic? Is it the love and the friendships? Is it the feasts and the battles? Is it the uh, betrayals, the creative dialogue, the intricate plot, the conflict, resolution? What is it about a great movie that makes it great? One reason I believe is because every good story whispers the story. That's God's story. Creation, fall, redemption, glorification. Now, these are big words, but packed with so much helpful theology. We can't just simply glaze over them. And so I want to take a moment, and to help me retell God's story, I'm going to use large, some large excerpts from a poem written by Jimmy Needham. It's appropriately called The Story, and it starts like this. This is a story. A story about a hero and a damsel, a villain and a scandal. Bend down, untie your sandals, because where we're going is holy ground. In the beginning was the hero, and the hero was the father, and the hero was the spirit, and the hero was the son. And if this hurts your head already, welcome to the kingdom. Immutable, inscrutable, infinitely glad-hearted, triune perfection, his ancient love reverberated off each member with no hint of dissension. Perfect in unity, perfect in diversity, 
Holy Trinity. One day the hero started speaking, and when he started speaking, things started being. Light, night, wind, water, mud, moons, seas and spiders, swimmers and flyers, gallopers and gliders, stars and seasons, rhyme and reason to all of it, and all of it was good. And suddenly all the commotion came to a standstill when our hero bent down and fashioned his damsel. God leaned over our body of earth, breathed life into our lungs, made our heart beat from dirt. He put light in our eyes. He gave us each other, and he gave us himself as a prize, and we were naked and not ashamed. The poem then goes on to introduce the villain, the vile serpent, and if you've been in church before, you know the story of the Garden of Eden, and the humans gave in to the temptation. They disobeyed the command of God, and with With that, they brought sin into God's world and a curse. Then this poem goes on. We became dark-hearted, bent inward on a mission to find within ourselves the solution. We fell in love with lesser things, and we bought them each a diamond ring. We betrayed our maker, our king, our husband. We tied our own self to the train tracks, The horn blows and careening toward us as 10,000 tons of God's wrath sounds so loud you can barely hear the screaming. Who will save us from the body of this death? Enter stage left, Jesus of Nazareth. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He came lowly, perfectly holy. He came like a groom on his way to the altar to meet the bride and for the dowry He had no cash, so he paid with his life. Are you shocked by the consequence of sin? Be more shocked by the mercy of him. You see, God's story is epic. The gospel is good news for the weary soul. It is a pronouncement that Jesus has paid the price for sinners, of whom I'm the worst. His righteousness imputed to me and my sin nailed to his cross. By no merit of my own, Christ's work on my behalf. And he didn't stay in that tomb. He resurrected bodily, defeating sin, and with it, death. This is an amazing gospel. And we're going to see in Galatians 2, verses 1 through 3, that the message of the gospel persists throughout all cultures. The message of the gospel persists throughout all cultures. Paul is continuing his narrative here to the Galatians. He says this, Then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. You see, Paul was the missionary of all missionaries. He went from place to place preaching the good news. We saw last week, Galatians 1.20, that he was in Syria and Cilicia. We have heard, if you've been in church for a while, of his letter to the Corinthians and Ephesians and Philippians and, and so on. Some of you may even have maps in the back of your study Bible with his missionary journeys. 
his first, second, third missionary journey. I mean, he was all over the Mediterranean region. And this was not a quick process either. When we think of travel, we typically measure travel time in hours, you know. How far is it to Dallas? About three hours. To Houston? Two hours, maybe three, depending on which part of Houston. 2,000 years ago, that was not the case. Travel was painfully slow. They measured it in weeks, months. I especially like the passage in Acts 27 where Paul is traveling by ship to Rome, and it says, quote, the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter there. I can't imagine having to go from one place and pit stop for like six months. Travel was slow, it was costly, it was dangerous, it was a big deal. What on earth would cause Paul in our passage today to travel back to Jerusalem? The gospel. Paul traveled back to Jerusalem with Barnabas and Titus. He explained before the leaders of that body the gospel that he proclaims to the Gentiles. In order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. Running in vain? Does Paul doubt his message? What does he mean by this? Now, Galatians 1, which Brent has preached on the past few weeks, gives us no indication that Paul was doubting his message. He was strongly convinced of the truth of the gospel, enough even to call someone accursed if they were to preach something different. So what does he mean by running in vain? There were a few interpretations of the phrase I ran across, but the one that I leaned towards and still hold with an open hand is this, is the view that Paul was concerned for the new believers and the new churches, the ones that he had founded. Should there have been any major division between his ministry and that of the Jerusalem headquarters. I mean, such a fundamental difference over the gospel really could have wreaked havoc upon these young churches and their understanding of sound theology. It's not as if they could just pull out their phones and fact check some rumor that they heard from Jerusalem or from anywhere. You know, don't you think a well-orchestrated rumor could have been devastating to the ministry? You know, we talked about traveling was slow. Well, information traveled just as slowly as the people. So this was a big deal for Paul to get together with these leaders and clear this up. And not only this, but there were actually people who purposefully followed Paul around, trying to wreck his ministry. And they would try to wreck it by discrediting him. Sometimes they would try to wreck it by mixing in some law with the gospel. Be circumcised, they would say. But you know, Titus wasn't forced to be circumcised, and he was a Greek. So as we've seen the past few weeks, if we mix in some law with the gospel, it ruins everything. It's kind of like we have a nice, delicious, hot cup of coffee, which is very fitting on a cold weekend like today. And you take this hot cup of coffee, and you mix in just a little bit of used engine oil, It's no longer drinkable. It's poisonous even. You see, grace plus works is no longer grace. So Paul travels to Jerusalem. He meets privately with those who are the influential leaders there, and he sets this gospel before them, and they are agreed. They are unified. And not just for unity's sake, but for the virtue of the truth of the gospel. This is true for all cultures, not even a pure-blood Greek who traveled with them, was forced 
to be circumcised. For Paul, who was preaching in Syria and Cilicia and beyond, for those in Jerusalem, for Greeks, the message of the gospel persists through all cultures. And secondly, the freedom of the gospel provokes its opponents. The freedom of the gospel provokes its opponents. Read verse 4 with me. Here it says, Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery. You may or may not have seen the Disney movie Frozen, and that's okay if you haven't. I've seen enough children's movies for all of us, I'm sure. In Frozen, there's a rather popular song called Let It Go, where Elsa, the queen, uses her ice magic to create a beautiful, intricately designed ice palace. It's got tall walls and elaborate stairways and chandeliers and windows, and all the while she is singing lyrics that sound like this. It's time to see what I can do, to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. And in that moment, the audience is captivated. The music is energetic and powerful. It's kind of a catchy song. And the song ends, and Elsa is alone in her carefully crafted ice palace. However, there's a little bit of irony here. Later on in the movie, her sister, her younger sister, Anna, who, by the way, is the clear Messiah figure in this movie, comes into this ice palace and begins to let her know that she's not as free as she thinks. There's a curse. There's an eternal winter that has been brought about. And as this starts to sink in in fear and frustration, Queen Elsa's song changes entirely. She doesn't sound like the previous set of lyrics. Now she's singing things like this. I'm such a fool. I can't be free. No escape this storm inside of me. I can't control the curse. I can't. And then out of anger and confusion in this moment, she releases a beam of her magic that strikes her sister in the chest and freezes her heart. And it turns out to be a fatal wound. And then if that weren't enough, she sends her younger sister out of her ice palace, or should I call it her self-made prison. You see, we ought not confuse the freedom that Elsa sings about with biblical freedom that we have in Jesus. True freedom says that we do nothing to earn or deserve right standing before a holy God. Our contribution to our salvation was the sin that made it necessary. Romans 5.8 says, but while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He demonstrated his love even when we were at our worst. Ephesians 2 explains that we were dead in our sins, dead in our sins, but God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive. What can a dead man build upon? How could we clean ourselves up in order to be a child of God? What could we possibly do to ensure that our adoption was secure? And the answer is nothing. For the false brothers that we just read about, that wasn't going to fly. I mean, they were brought in and they were provoked. After all, to them, Paul's gospel was quite scandalous. 
How dare you, Paul, suggest that Gentiles don't have to do anything to be made right before God? I mean, you got to think of something they got to do. Make them obey the law. Make them get circumcised. Well, like Elsa, false brothers figuratively construct houses for themselves made of faith plus works, which is no gospel at all. They build these houses and they do not realize that their self-righteousness is a captivity that they are living in. They can create their own staircases. They can create their own chandeliers and hallways and bedrooms and checklists. And worse than Elsa, they not only live in these restrictive prisons themselves, but they often demand others live in them as well. Which is why they keep pestering Paul, I believe. They were brought in to spy out our freedom, it says. And I love Paul's response in verse 5. To them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you, Galatians. Church, the law says that you must pull it off, that you've got to figure out all of God's demands on, on your own, but the gospel says that Christ met those demands on your behalf. He did the work. You know, a seminary professor who was teaching about the freedom that we have in Jesus, was once confronted by a student after class. And the student came up to him, I'm sure it was, was kind about it and all, but came up and asked a question to the professor. He said, sir, it sounds like you're saying that because we are not under the law, that we can do whatever we want. And without hesitating, the professor said, well, now that you've been set free from the power of sin and death, what do you want to do? And the student was speechless. You know, the professor's question, what do you want to do, is profound for a few reasons. One is that the believer's desires are different. Those who have lived a rebellious life and have been met by Christ and it's changed them are the first ones to admit they don't want the same things they used to want. Because they know where that leads oftentimes. Old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come to those who are in Christ Jesus. But another way that his question, what do you want to do, is profound, perhaps even more so. It's profound because the question brings to the surface the student's presupposition that freedom means opportunity to sin. And that is an error. The person who would answer, well, I just want to live in this particular sin, they don't understand freedom. They've got things backwards, don't you see? It's the sin that is the captivity. It can be the sin of self-righteousness, like we see in the false brothers, wanting to add on to God's gospel. It could be the sin of rebellion and addiction. It's the freedom that lies in being justified by Christ. And this is perhaps most dangerous because it's more subtle to the person who wants to rationalize their sin. For example, you might think, well, I don't struggle with gossip. I just like prayer requests, you know. Well, it's not like I'm killing anybody, but I'm just going to dabble in porn a little bit. We always have some sort of sin that we tend to want to rationalize. And that's a problem because if you find yourself rationalizing your sin, 
it may have more power over it than you, than you think. To the degree, in fact, that you want to rationalize your sin, that is the degree to which you're functionally enslaved to it. But if you know Christ, then you are no longer positionally enslaved to it. Don't you see? It's the sin that is the bondage. In Christ, we are free. I am now free to love God and not demand from him. I'm free to love my neighbor instead of expect them to serve me somehow. I'm free to work hard at my job with a clear conscience. I'm free to receive a rebuke without losing my temper. I'm now free to wash the dishes out of love and not resentment. I realize that none of this makes uh, bad habits go away magically. However, can we at least agree to speak biblically about freedom versus captivity? Freedom is not opportunity to sin. Freedom is justification in Christ by his blood alone. The sin is the captivity. The freedom of the gospel provokes its opponents is the second point. The third point is this. The proclamation of the gospel to all people is crucial. In verse 6, it says, And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. The apostles had been entrusted to minister to two groups of people, the circumcised and the uncircumcised, those who were Jews and those who were Gentiles. So that's everyone. Perhaps in our 21st century uh, pluralistic culture, this is not really that big of a deal, but back in ancient Near East, this was a huge deal. The Gentiles were heathen pagans. They were despised. They were unclean. They could not enter the temple for worship. And yet it was Paul who was preaching the gospel to the Gentile lands, to Gentile people, and Peter to the circumcised. Uh, perhaps you noticed in verse 8 where he begins to describe his power source. It says, For he who worked through Peter worked also through me. Now, Paul was doing the preaching. Peter was the one who was ministering to the circumcised, but someone else was at work in it. This is an indirect way of God saying, uh, of Paul saying that God works through the preaching of his word, the gospel, whether it is Peter to the Jews, whether it's Paul to the Gentiles, whether it's a counselor to a troubled teenager, or maybe it's a mom and dad with their kids at home before they go to bed. No matter who is doing the ministering, it is God who is at work in it when the gospel is proclaimed. And when God works, people change. This is true for all people groups, Jews, Gentiles. This is true for all backgrounds, family situations, as dysfunctional as they may or may not be, education levels, all measures of prosperity. No one is too bad 
for the gospel to be unable to clean them. No one is too far gone for the gospel to be unable to reach them. And the other side of that coin is true too. No one is too good or put together for the gospel to be unnecessary. Some of you may have heard of the name Justin Beatles, a Speedo dad, a former pastor here at Grace Bible Church. He once said to me in a conversation, you never outgrow your need for the gospel. You see, we need grace to be converted to Christ, and we need grace for the rest of our lives. Our passage goes on in verse 9. It says, And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. They perceived the grace that was given to Paul, and they gave the right hand of fellowship. Yes, Paul, preach on. We are justified by grace through faith in Christ alone, not by circumcision. It says earlier that they added nothing to me, not circumcision nor any good work. And it's true for the Jews, the Gentiles. It mentions here even the influential, the pillars of the faith, the ones you look up to. And it's true even for those who are poor and destitute and find themselves worth, uh, nowhere to turn. It is true for all peoples. Now this brings us to our next steps as we close out our time together. What can we take away from this? I simply have a question for you to ask yourself. Here's what it says in our next steps in your bulletin. In what ways have I misunderstood the truth of the gospel and the freedom I have in Christ? The truth of the gospel is that we have right standing before God. Yes, he prepared good works for us to walk in, Ephesians 2.10 says. But are we now using those as trophies or merit badges? That might be an indication that we are trusting more in our works than his. Jesus took our sin, and he said, it is finished, and he gives us his righteousness. That's the truth of the gospel. Now, do I misunderstand the freedom that we have? Do I tolerate and rationalize my own sin? Do I tend to call that the freedom instead of calling them what they are, which is bondage? When the Lord reveals to you your sin, that is a grace, that he would show us our bondage instead of giving us over to it. It's so gracious for him to do that. So when the Holy Spirit does poke your conscience, write it down. Tell someone. Don't hide it in the dark. By all means, that's right where Satan wants you, is in the dark, alone, isolated in your ice palace. But share it with a trusted friend. Confess it. Bring it into the light and experience true freedom. Earlier, I quoted a Jimmy Nita poem, and it's with it. I'm going to close up. He says this at the end of his song. Couldn't free ourselves, so Christ became our freedom. We couldn't fill these lungs, so he became our breathing. We live because he died. Once a harlot, now a bride. Sins were scarlet, now made white. God made, we strayed. 
God's love displayed. God, man, gives grace. He stands in our place, our sins erased. Debt paid always. So fall on your face and give God all praise.